Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Okay, welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. Be sure to uh, remember to visit mentalmodels.com. Provide us with feedback and ideas. Yeah, also if uh, you take a look at uh, uh, wherever you're uh, accessing this podcast, please take the time to uh, provide a like if you like it and uh, any sort of comment about uh, what it is you think of our uh, little endeavor here. Or if you have other ideas that we might cover. So today we'll talk about uh, a bias known as the knowledge illusion. And I'll provide a little background on this one. So the knowledge illusion uh, has to do with calibrating our own expertise and having insight into it. So what, what happens with the knowledge illusion, as, as the name implies, uh, you get overconfident in your knowledge about a particular subject. And this uh, term, the, the knowledge illusion, is a book um, by Philip Fernbach and Steve Sloman, and they are uh, making the point that what we know is often not very individualized. We essentially work in communities of knowledge, and one of the dangers associated with the large, you know, voluminous set of information that's available to us is when we hear expert opinion or when we've heard something just repeatedly, uh, we haven't necessarily earned that knowledge for ourselves, and we may sort of jump the gun and get overconfident that we have more understanding than we really do. Yeah, and in investing, it's particularly important to be able to understand what your circle of competence is what you know and what you don't know. And uh, you don't want to overly rely upon someone else knowing uh, the particular subject that you have and then just assuming that since they know it, uh, that it is consistent with whatever narrative you happen to have. And often the surface details get repeated on some topic and we don't question really the mechanics of how that works. And so this also relates to another phenomenon uh, called the, the illusion of explanatory depth. And that's a way of basically miscalibrating how much you know about a topic. And this goes back to work by Frank Kyle from Yale. Uh, and what they would do in their studies would be to ask people of essentially rate your understanding of something like a jet engine or a uh, helicopter. And people would rate these things as relatively high, like they understand it pretty well. They would next ask people, well, how does, how does it work? And people would be stumped. They would <laughs> kind of describe the sound and the look of the thing, but they would really lose the detail. Like what's the, the cause and effect chain of how the air moves through the engine? Or you know, what does the turbine really do? Or how does the fuel get added? And when you sort of shine the light on this for people, they, they would, their confidence would suddenly drop and they would rate their understanding as much less. And then they would kind of bring it full circle by you know, showing them sort of an instructional video and then re-rate the knowledge. And people would find that, oh, they'd actually learned something. And now they would have sort of the same confidence they had at the beginning. But this time they actually understood it. Often when we see uh, various businesses and we're, coming across questions about the knowledge associated with that business and 
how that business actually functions. This becomes very relevant when we're looking at competitive advantage. What is it about one product that makes it superior to another? If you're analyzing something like technology, that can be very difficult to uh, discern if you don't really understand all of the nuance associated with the implementation of that technology and what its advantages are relative to its competitors. Sometimes we'll just breeze over uh, some of those questions. And to be fair, there are instances where you can get around it by surveying customers, for instance. If you do a broad enough survey and they simply tell you that they prefer this particular product because of some feature, then we may be able to have a little bit less knowledge of how it actually works and still be able to make an adequate decision. But, you know, you have to be able to get to that point. You can't just make the assumption uh, that, oh, okay, well, they're obviously generating revenue and they're growing at a certain rate and therefore they have a good product. And this also seems relevant to starting business. Startups often suffer from this problem of having to pivot because their original idea just no one really liked it. And so you have to talk to the customers or potential customers because I think there's, you know, entrepreneurs often have a knowledge illusion that because I love this idea, others are, of course, going to see the same things I do. And guess what? They don't. <laughs> so you, you really have to, you know, shine a light on it by um, getting outside opinion or uh, considering the possibility that you may be um, overconfident. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I, I do have to say this, this does bring to mind the, the notion that if you're ever investing in a company where they say, we want to diversify the business or uh, something along those lines, or we, you know, we're transitioning away from something, uh, you know, from the existing business, or that this will be a transformational year, you need to run for the hills if you're long. It probably makes a good short. But uh, those words have a history of decimating financial performance. Wow. Yeah, that's good advice. Very definitive. Um, so another aspect of the knowledge illusion was uh, that I wanted to bring up. It's a very clever study by Nathaniel Rabb and Steve Sloman. And what they did was uh, present people with a variety of scientific findings, which were fictional. Like one of them was scientists discovered some rocks that glow like the lost Sankara stones from Indiana Jones. Uh, it doesn't really exist, unfortunately, but it'd be cool if it did. And they would tell people that scientists fully understand the rocks. <laughs> and then they would ask people to rate their knowledge of it. And they would kind of rate it overly high, like because some scientists were said to understand it, then therefore I understand it more. And if they simply put, scientists do not yet understand the phenomenon, people would rate their own understanding appropriately low. <laughs> And so it just goes to show how much uh, people rely on the notion that experts understand this and that as long as experts have given us the gist and the take-home message, we don't have to do any of the hard work for ourselves. And that's a really dangerous position to be in because it leaves you very open to adopting any of the biases or the manipulativeness or you know, possibly the shiftiness of the so-called expert, um, or even a very well-intentioned, accomplished expert is going to be wrong some of the time, and you would have a very hard time knowing when that would happen because you haven't actually taken any ownership of the knowledge yourself. Yeah, it, it seems like a lot of this comes down to just the notion of deference. It reminds me of the 
uh, experiment that I don't think can be conducted today where uh, students were told by an authority uh, to administer shocks to uh, other students. The Stanley Milgram experiment. Yes. yes. <laughs> and and, and we, we, we give authority, and experts are typically viewed as authorities. We give them such deference that can often lead us to make decisions that we wouldn't otherwise make. And it seems like there may be a relationship here between uh, the, the knowledge illusion and uh, that, that whole uh, deference to authority. Well, we also act in, in a sense, communities of knowledge. And this was one of the points that uh, Sloman and Fernbach make in the Knowledge Illusion book, is that uh, the world is so complex and we have access to so much knowledge on a regular basis that the access, in a sense, stands in for actually knowing things. And if, if you think about what politicians often do, uh, politicians are rarely an expert at any one aspect of of the economy or foreign policy. It's usually the case that they're just good at assimilating various people's expertise and trying to assemble teams of experts. Um, I guess you could say coaching is sort of the same phenomenon where you you kind of, as a community, you're going to succeed. And so there's some skill in, in assembling those pieces. And so all of us today, uh, with the, the high availability of information, have um, a need to, in some sense, outsource our knowledge to others. And the fact that we can look it up is, is sort of like a brain prosthetic of sorts that we don't necessarily have to study it all for ourselves. It's, it's there if we need it. Uh, that just leaves you open to some dangers because uh, you're, again, operating just with too little information. And you can really get caught out uh, in cases where you've, you just get overconfident. This arises uh, often when we're talking about macro analysis, when we're looking at the economy. Uh, typically, uh, if you look, there's these gloom and doom economists who like to come out and talk about, uh, Norio Rabini was a good example during the financial crisis. He uh, was very vocal very early on about the uh, pending collapse of the financial system because of excess indebtedness within the system. There was a couple of things that were going on there. Uh, one, he spoke with a lot of authority. He had a lot of facts at his command, and things were coming to fruition somewhat in the way that he described it. But then after the crisis had averted, and he'd been saying these things for years, it was not uh, something that uh, he hid under a bushel. It had, he'd been very vocal about them since the early 2000s. And there's an old, uh, there's an old saying in the investment world and, and, and really outside as well that uh, a, you know, a stopped clock is right you know, twice a day. Uh, and here it was very much the case uh, where a lot of these doom and gloom uh, experts who come and provide this very elaborate narrative uh, that they will eventually be right, and that's their day of uh, uh, in the sun is when everything's collapsing. Uh, but uh, when if you follow them down the primrose path and 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 you adopt their narrative, uh, it can be very very destructive because the market tends to go up over time. Equities tend to appreciate over time, and for most of the time. Uh, you're in a bull market. So if you're constantly bearish because you've adopted this expert's narrative that's very pessimistic, 
chances are you'll underperform. And is there another danger of the, the sort of asymmetry of emotion here that it seems to be more permissible to be forecasting doom and if you're wrong, everyone's kind of happy, but they still kind of respect you because you seem like you might have been onto something. But if it's the reverse where you're forecasting, you know, wine and roses and it goes south, we seem to punish that person more. Well, uh, it's interesting. It, I think it plays on the salience bias as well. You know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, that, that notion that uh, the, a story of impending doom is so much more interesting to read than, you know, things are pretty good and they're probably going to keep being that way which is usually the case. Very, very good point. And especially very relevant in the sense of this community of knowledge idea that a lot of what we end up reading or consuming is uh, slanted in a way to evoke some sort of uh, reaction. And so, you know, news tends toward more of a hyperbole. It's often a caricature of, we're such a fast moving society. You know, it feels like we've gone to this, ultra fast, ultra short consumption of information. If you think of when you had to write a physical letter by hand, you know, there was a lot of thought and labor and deliberative uh, sort of action that took, it really took a, a while to get that done and you had to figure out how to get it to someone. And then we moved to email, right, where it's just simple, but now we're into texts where and the text can't even be too long. You know, yeah, these, not even now. a sentence, right? And so we're, we've distilled this down into this very rapid automatic form of communication. And so uh, what that ends up doing is distilling away a lot of the key details. And so if all you ever get is the take-home message, you, of course, leave yourself open to this knowledge illusion because the details are lacking when you go to interrogate your beliefs later. There's two other places when we're thinking about investing that we should focus on uh, avoiding uh, too much uh, reliance in, on the, the knowledge bias, and that is sell-side analysts and then ideas that you get from other investors. Often, uh, when you get information from a sell-side analyst, they'll have an opinion on a particular stock or an industry uh, or, or, or a business, and uh, they probably have spent a fair amount of time studying it. But it's very dangerous to adopt that as your narrative. It often happens within the investment community that people listen to sell-side analysts and, and use their analysis to aid them in making their investment decisions. But often that analysis is going to be fully incorporated into the current price of the stock because it's widely disseminated and well-known by the investment community. The second issue, of course, is when you get an idea from someone else that you have a tremendous amount of respect for, uh, and you assume that they've done their homework uh, and rely upon that as your own investment uh, for your own investment decision without duplicating the work, then there's a very good chance that when circumstances change, and they will, that you won't know how to act appropriately once those circumstances arise. And uh, you're not going to have the benefit of the premises that the investor that shared the information with you uh, has and all the detail that they use to build their research. Might you also find yourself kind of going with the crowd in a sense, if you're listening to experts, because probably others are as well, and that would be a bad position to be in. Yeah, I would say it depends to some degree on how disseminated the information is. 
But uh, generally, uh, I find that my track record, if I take an idea that somebody else has provided me uh, and invest in it, it is devastatingly bad. So I usually try to avoid any ideas that I get from others. This is one of those biases that's extremely uh, potent because we often, if you think about our our mental models from more of a philosophical standpoint, uh, there's this term embodied cognition, which is this notion that uh, we're not a brain in a jar, right? This is a phrase we've used before. What that means is we interact with the world in these visual and auditory and tactile ways, and we, you know, we're we're a bimanual creature, and that shapes our thinking. And in many ways, our memories, which we've talked about before, as being uh, distorted and somewhat flawed. Uh, we kind of outsource our memories in a way to the the environment around us. We we don't encode the details of the doorway and the the tile on the walls and the exact dimensions of a room because we know we could easily look that up. It, it doesn't make sense to load up our memory system with that kind of detail. So again, we gravitate toward these gist-based memories that um, it's not that we we don't need the details. It's that we kind of make this calculation as we take in information. That's something I don't need to actively recall. It's something that'll be there later. And so if you take that into the realm of, uh, if you incorporate that too much into your life, it leads to that knowledge illusion that you start to take for granted that information would be there when you need it. Uh, the problem is when you do need it, it's often not there. Uh, just to offer a remedy to this, uh, applying cause effect thinking whenever you can. And this this helps in markets, it helps in life. Just really try to interrogate when you think you understand something, especially when you start to express a very confident opinion. Just take a moment to think through how it would actually work mechanistically. What are the factors that have to occur for your thesis to play out, for your predictions to be correct? Uh, try to quantify those, which is something that uh, we talk about a lot. Uh, adding numbers to things, uh, just the act of doing that forces you to deliberately think about the problem a little bit more, devote some active work to it, and pretty much that's the remedy to breaking this knowledge illusion is to always question your assumptions and just try to build in habits and practices that allow you to do that. I think so. And uh, when, when I do decide to look at something that's been shared to me by someone else, the first approach I, I apply is to try to come up with a counterargument that dispels their thesis. Uh, so that can help to some degree overcome the issue of providing too much reliance upon someone else's understanding. But, uh, and I think that pretty much wraps this one up, doesn't it? Yeah. So in the spirit of the knowledge illusion, don't take our word for any of this, you know, do your own work and figure out if you buy into this illusion or not. That's pretty good. So we thank you very much for listening. If you're interested in these topics, be sure to visit the show notes at mentalmodelspodcast.com where you can find more links to the basic brain physiology as well as some of the topics we've talked about today. Uh, just another reminder, uh, we have a forthcoming book entitled Understanding Behavioral Biases, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, which is all about some of these biases that can undermine your performance and the uh, basis for those within our brains and how it impacts our lives. I think that about wraps it up. Thank you for listening. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. 
Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dana George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.